Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Clevey, your host, and with me today on the panel is Joel Schobert. Hey, hey Joel. Sean. Hey. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You know, it's almost Halloween as recording here, so I'm a little disappointed because Halloween's one of my favorite holidays because it's all interactive and things like that, and really not going to do much this year because of all the COVID things. Well, we we want to be safe, so. Yeah, not so. a good year for parties, is it? <laughs> no, it isn't. So we'll try to make the best of it, do what we can. So with us today, we've got Prabhas Servadina and Juan Dias. And what we're going to talk about is microservices security. So say hi, guys. Hi, Sean. Hi, Joe. Thanks for, thanks for having us on this podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks for having us. And nice to meet you. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So thanks for coming on the show. Do you ever have trouble just getting into the flow? You find that your tool is great, like Visual Studio, but you could just get more out of it or get some stuff out of your way or have it give you better feedback that you would be able to get into flow easier? Well, let me tell you about Code Rush. Code Rush actually solves this problem for you. So the first thing that it does is it actually gives you a visualizer on the way that the code is set up, and it actually helps you debug stuff in an intuitive way that makes it easy for you to figure out what's going on. This really helps me stay in the flow when I'm trying to write code. Another thing that it does is it has a whole bunch of navigation options that you can get used to. Now, this is something that I figured out with Emacs was something that I really got into. So when I started using Emacs, just the key bindings and, and kind of the natural flow of things made me a much, much more efficient programmer. And the quick navigation in Code Rush is awesome. You should definitely try it out. They have code analysis, so they'll pick out some of the issues maybe for complexity or diagnose some other code issues. It'll point out code smells. It'll help you refactor your code. So the code analysis is another thing where I don't have to actually go in and sit down and think, okay, have I made any mistakes in this code? Because it actually highlights them. And finally, it just validates like your code coverage and all of the other things that you're trying to look at and gives you real numbers and real feedback on the quality of your coding and the quality of your tests. So go check out Code Rush. You can get it at devexpress.com slash products slash Code Rush or just go to devchat.tv slash Code Rush and it'll send you to the right place. Once again, that's devchat.tv slash Code Rush. So why don't you... You know, let's start with Prabhat. Why don't you give us a little rundown of who you are, what you do, and how you got into development? Yes. So I'm Prabhat Sirivadana. I'm the deputy CTO uh, security uh, at WSO2. And also, uh, I uh, manage or lead the WSO2 identity server, which is an open source identity and access management product. I've been with WSO2 for last 13 years, and like since the very first day, I've been working on this product, uh, WSO2 Identity Server. It's all open source, uh, released under the uh, the most business friendly open source license, uh, Apache 2.0. Yes, yeah, so my career as a developer and also uh, as an IAM professional started from uh, WSO2. Prior to that, I worked in another company for three years as a software engineer after after my graduation. And I was initially uh, like uh, based out of Colombo, Sri Lanka with uh, Nuan. And I moved to uh, San Jose in uh, 2050. Yeah. Since then, uh, been here. Yeah. Okay. And is all that experience that you've been, is that with .NET or you've been working with different environments and different languages? Yeah. So mostly uh, we work on uh, uh, Java. So Java is a primary programming language we use to build all the WSO products. Yeah. Okay. All right. 
And how about you, Noah? What do you do? Yeah, yeah, I'm Noah Das. I also I'm the VP and Deputy CTO for the API management and integration space uh, at WSO2. So similar to the identity server, we also have uh, two products called the API manager and the enterprise integrator. So I'm basically responsible for for the R and D and the roadmap and the vision for those products. So I ended up in computer science, you know, pretty much similar to how most people end up end up on it. So I chose computer science, went to college, and then after graduation, ended up in WSO2. Okay. So with uh, we're talking about microservices, API security today. Do these concepts kind of apply to all languages and, and environments? Yes. Yeah, so microservices, one, and then again, APIs. So those are mostly the architectural patterns. And the concepts around those are a language agnostic. Uh, so Nuan and I uh, worked on the book, Microservices uh, Security in Action. So we started this uh, probably two and a half years back, and the book was out uh, three months back. So there, we try to be as much as language agnostic. We use uh, different like Java, Spring Boot, and JavaScript to uh, write our samples, demonstrate how things work. But at the conceptual level, they are language agnostic. And even how you apply security, that's that's the language agnostic. That's the beauty of microservices too. And once again, it's a key like design principle of, of microservices. You should be able to interact with multiple microservices, multiple microservices written in different programming languages. So you use like the, the, the microservices that you develop using different technology stacks. So that's the beauty of microservices. And uh, moving forward, like uh, when you are when when you are a large company with multiple teams. If you follow microservice design principles, you should be able to interact with different teams with different technology stacks. Okay, great. So, um, if somebody's first getting into let's let's first def- define what a microservice is. You know, a lot of people probably have different definitions, but what does microservice mean to you? Yeah. Okay. So, no one can share his idea too. So, once again, microservice itself is an overloaded term. Like people have defined it in different ways, and so if you look at a little bit of like history uh, from the SOA, service-oriented architecture era, SOA itself defines what a service is and the principles around a, a service. But somehow over the time, when we implement services under the SOA design principles, we violated some of the key principles. For example, the scope of a service. Right? So ideally, even with the even if you follow a SOA design principles, your services should be well scoped, right? So that doesn't mean that scope should be reduced, but it should it should follow this single responsibility principle. So when you design a scope of a service, it should adhere to the single responsibility principle. But most of the services, like SOAP-based services, when they were following SOA design principle, they didn't care that much about this, the primary principles of SOA. So they ended up building monolithic application, monolithic services, which violated the principles. So that's why some people call microservices as SOA done right. So I, to some extent, agree with that. But then again, microservice concept has gone well beyond architectural principle or architectural pattern. Now it has become a culture. So there are a lot of things built around this key design principle. For example, 
at the baseline, at the bottom line, you need to have well scoped service. Then again, to build a well scoped service, you need to have the right team structure. Ideally, you should have small teams, right? Maybe like 10, 12 people a team. So then they can look after narrowly scoped service, right? So there can be there, there can be a team which manage one or two like few set of microservices. So that's one thing. The another thing is one one key uh, motivation behind for most of the companies to move to this microservices architecture is they want to get things done quickly or uh, reduce the time to production. So if you are to reduce the time to production and if you want to push uh, new features and changes to production as as soon as possible and also that has to be done in a reliable reliable manner right with all the tests and everything that so you need to worry about the CI/CD pipeline so that's where the lot of tooling around CI/CD pipeline has built in and and then again for to make the testing much easier you should be able to test the services that you build in in multiple environments right so with without 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 any fuss so that's where the containers has come into the picture. So with containers, you deploy Microsoft, you deploy Microsoft with container. So it can be deployed over any platform. Uh, so with, with no major fuss, anyone can uh, like spin up a service without, without high dependency on the underneath platform and, and test stuff. And also that helps you to deploy your service in multiple platforms. So that has helped to make this, uh, the time to production so, so that's what I'm telling that the microservice has gone beyond just by being a design principle. Now it has become a culture. So Netflix, Amazon has been like pioneers in taking this microservice culture forward. Okay, so we kind of got a baseline for what microservices are now. So if I build a microservice, I probably going to build many microservices and all that interaction between themselves and between the users all needs to be secure. So where do I start? What's the first first thing to know about securing microservices? Yeah, so I can probably take that one. So uh, you are right when you say like when people build microservices, they probably end up with, uh, with a lot. So one of the key things to securing microservices basically is to ensure that your entry point into these services are secured. So usually what, what we do technically is to have something called an API gateway, which basically grants all the access into the microservices layer. So all the traffic that's coming in from user applications and so on, go through a layer which we call as the API gateway layer. We also call this the ingress uh, point uh, in, a, in an architecture. So everything goes through the gateway and the gateway is the one that does all of the authentication and authorization. So we use the gateway to secure uh, north to south or what we call the, the external to internal communication path. And by that, you ensure everything that's coming in into your service layer from outside is secured. So that's like the uh, level zero, level one of uh, securing microservices. And then, of course, you have once you are in, once a request is in, it may go through several hops of microservices to ensure the business logic is catered to or the request is catered to say so then you have additional layers of security which we call as the east west traffic where services communicate with each other and we have many protocols for securing those microservices based on which communication channels they use to uh, communicate and so on 
So it could be what we call as mutual uh, TLS, sometimes uh, JWT-based security, and so on. So depending on the type of communication, how you secure these inter-service communications may vary. And to add to that, like if you look at uh, how we structured our book, uh, so when I when one and I worked on this, so we did a lot of brainstorming, like how we want to structure our book because microservice security has a, like a, a broader landscape. So we divided this into a few sections. So one is edge security. So that's what uh, Nuan talked about, like securing the APIs and north-south traffic. Then the other uh, other area we need to worry about it, uh, the service-service communication. So when one service talks to another service, how do you secure that communication channel? That's east-west communication. Then uh, we also need to worry about deployment, like uh, how you secure uh, the containers. Then uh, how do you secure uh, the Kubernetes environment? And if you are using a service mesh, how you can achieve a zero trust network pattern uh, using a service mesh. That's a deployment side. And then finally, we talked about the development. So when you develop microservices, what are the, uh, uh, the best practices you should follow when writing code? And also, what are the static code analysis tool, dynamic testing you need to carry out, and how you can integrate those into CICD pipeline. So those are the four areas we discuss in the book. Okay, so get us started on you know you know the first area, the first things that we need to know once we've built the microservices and how to secure it. Yes, in one uh, you want to get started with the probably the edge security, yeah. Yeah, sure. So so like I was mentioning, the the first thing that you want to consider when you're building a microservice is to figure out who's going to be using this microservice. So there are microservices that are serving requests coming from the outside world, like when a user presses a button on a mobile application or on a web page, a request might end up on a microservice. So if it's that kind, that kind of a microservice, you have to make sure it is secured at the edge, meaning you have to make sure the request comes through a gateway, the gateway does the authentication, and then the gateway propagates some security context to the microservice because beyond the gateway also, we need to make sure that there's a trust established in that channel so that we, when the request lands up on the microservice, we know uh, that it came from a trusted source. So that's one of the first things to note, like uh, who is going to be talking to me. If it's an internal microservice, it's an internal comp component that's talking to me, then I have to look at what is protocol. So the second thing you have to be considered about is uh, what protocols are being used to communicate with me. So my microservice could be one that's being served over HTTP, one that be, that's being served over gRPC, or it can be an event, so on. So based on that, you have to choose the appropriate mechanism of securing it. It could be mutual TLS, it could be OAuth-based security, and so on. So these are some of the basic things to consider, like the first most things to consider when you, when you are thinking about securing a given microservice. Okay, so at, at that level, it's really just like any other application. You've got to authorize and authenticate your users to um, the things that they're going to be accessing. That's that, yes. So at the end, edge, we need to worry about authentication and the authorization. And also at, during the service, service communications too, we need to worry about the authentication and authorization. So if you take an API, so basically the microservices, uh, as Nuan mentioned, are exposed to the rest of the world where an API. So you have an API gateway, which will route traffic to an upstream microservice. So as uh, Nuan mentioned, uh, so microservices are exposed to the rest of the world for an API gateway. So API gateway will route traffic to the upstream microservices. 
So at API end, there are two types of users. One is a system can access an API just by being itself, or else a system can access an API on behalf of an end user. For example, when you when you access Netflix, right? So as a human user, we have Netflix account, but either the Netflix app or the smart TV application is accessing the Netflix APIs on behalf of you, right? So that's a system accessing an API on behalf of a human user. So when you do authentication and authorization at the edge, you need to worry about that. So that's why, as one mentioned, O2O has become the de facto standard for securing APIs at the edge. Then the API gateway will verify the secret at that level and will terminate the secret at that level and will generate a security context which carries the client application and the, the end user information and will pass that to the upstream microservice. So then uh, which security mechanisms you need to use to protect or enforce access control checks and authentication at the, each microservice level depends on the protocol that you use. It, either the communication between microservices can happen over gRPC, HTTP, or, or Kafka, like in an event-driven world. So you need to pick the things that you need. The question you asked, like, so in that case, they are just like another application. Yes, so they are just like another application. But something we need to think about is the single responsive principle. So single responsibility principle is not just applicable for the business logic you write. It's also applicable for the non-functional requirements. So if you are a if you are a developer who's building a business logic, you should not be overloaded with how you how you handle security for your microservice, how you handle observability for your microservice, how you handle analytics for your microservice. Those should be done outside your microservice. That's where the service mesh comes into your picture. So as a developer, I worry about my microservice and I build that. So now I deploy the container. Now we use a service mesh, for example, Istio service mesh. Then all the requests coming to your microservice from the API gateway will be intercepted by a proxy. Right? So in the Istio mesh architecture, it's an envoy proxy. So envoy proxy will intercept all the requests coming to a microservice and will enforce authentication authorization checks as well as gather analytics, perform some of the like routing stuff, do observability stuff will be done from the envoy proxy. So that's why we see Service mesh pattern is, a, is in a way is a good way to implement the zero trust network pattern. The reason is so one basic principle behind zero net network principle is you don't trust the network, right? So that's the bottom line of zero trust network pattern. So if you don't trust the network, you should enforce all the security checks as much as closer to your service or the resource. So when you deploy envoy proxy co-located with your microservice, then no one can reach this microservice without going through the Envoy. Then you validate everything at the Envoy layer, taking out the complete burden of doing secret checks from the microservice. Yeah, great example. So if I had, so to take that like a little further, let's say I was at a company, come in there to implement something for them. And let's say they had an API server that was just JWT. That's what it took, JWT HTTP. So something kind of classic. Now I'm going to make an app and it's just going to be browser-based. I'm going to put a UI server. So at the very start, does my UI server go inside that API gateway with the API server or does it stay on the outside and has to call in through that layer to get to the API gate, to get to the service? Yeah, so um, it will basically uh, be outside. But how it will, so you, I, I assume you're talking about the 
end use application or the UI application, the web application here. So it will be outside. So however, the, the flow would be the application should first authenticate itself with an authorization server before even it actually gets to the API gateway. So right. to that, do that, you basically uh, would typically use the OAuth protocol and uh, do an OAuth handshake with an authorization server and obtain a key, which is what we call as an access token in the world of OAuth 2. And then your request that comes to the API gateway should bear this access token, which the gateway will trust, will know how to trust. And, and then the gateway will validate this access token and let you in into the, let your request in into the system. Nice. So if I do that, if I use that strategy, then in the browser, after I go to the UI server, I show it on the browser, make my user log in, get an OAuth token. Would that work out then that if I needed to make an AJAX call through the API gateway back to that API server behind that, would that same OAuth token then be used for the AJAX call so the browser can do that as well? Yes, that is correct. So even for, for the AJAX calls, uh, it will be passed. So there are two ways of doing this. So there are cases like what we call as a single page applications sometimes. So they store the access token and use it for every request that goes in into the API gateway. So and, and there's another pattern which is being used commonly, which is you have another proxy, a web proxy between the API gateway and your web application. And what this web application or web proxy does is to kind of map a session cookie with an OAuth token that it maintains on the server side. Okay. So between the application and your web proxy, what you actually maintain is a session based on a cookie. And the proxy basically maps that cookie into an OAuth token and gives it to the API gateway. So both of these patterns are used in different kinds of web applications. It sounds like there's probably some pros and cons of that. I mean, I'd be guessing that the mapping approach in some ways makes a little more security because the browser's not even seeing the OAuth token that's going to be used to get through the gateway. Is, is that some of the pros and cons? Yes, that is correct. So one of the, these are some of the problems that have been there in, in the OAuth, uh, some uh, protocols itself. Like if you look at it, so OAuth had this implicit grant, which was intended for these kinds of unsecure JavaScript-based applications. But due to some of these limitations, now that protocol or grant type, as we call it, is no longer recommended. So yes, so whenever web applications have problems, you know, storing the token on the browser side and so on, they employ these kinds of mechanisms. But now what is happening is there are newer mechanisms being introduced to get rid of these problems too. So there's, there's something called TKC that's coming up. Uh, that that's there and, and several other mechanisms that are solving these problems now related to storing the tokens on the browsers and so on. Oh, great. Okay. And now what I've noticed right in my apps as well, the idea of kind of trying to follow the single responsibility model is really nice. So you, you're writing your service, your, your service on the back end, and it's great not to have to worry about a lot of that. And I think that works quite well for authentication. Like you are who you say you are. But what I found is when it gets into authorization, like can you do this thing or how much data should you be able to see based on maybe your role within the organization? What I have found when I'm programming that, there's no way to keep those concepts out of from going very deep into the service call you're writing itself. Are you guys finding that same thing that there's really no way around that, even if you do have 
the idea of single responsibility, you can't really take the idea of, can I do this thing out of your service? Right. That's right. Yes. So in, in authorization, we see three levels of enforcing the access control rules. So one is at the API gateway. So at the API gateway, you enforce post-screen access control policies. For example, who can do a get to the customer's API? Mm -hmm. Who can do a post to the customer API? Right? So once that is done, you dispatch the request to the microservice. So at the microservice level also, you have an interceptor. That's the, the envoy proxy in a typical service mesh environment. So at the envoy proxy level also, you can enforce certain access control policies specific to that microservice. Right? For example, you can say only you can do a get to the customer service only if by this particular role and you can do it between uh, this time of the day. Right? So because in a, in a typical corporate microservice environment, you have the API gateway and set of microservices. So the, the governance of each microservices would come from different teams. So they may have their own access control policies, which are enforced at the microservice level. At the same time, corporate level access control policies can be enforced at the like initial entry point to your microservice deployment, that's the API gateway. So the enforcing microservices, the access control policies at the microservice level is a second level. That is more fine-brained than the first level. Mm -hmm. And the third one is what you mentioned, that we call as data entitlements. So that means you cannot simply in, like enforce an access control policy without seeing the response. For example, you can say, uh, you can do a get to the employee slash salary, right? But you can only see the salaries of employees. Let's say you can see if the salary, uh, you can see the records if the salaries are greater than, let's say 10K. Monthly salary is 10K, right? If the salaries are less than that, you can't see it either way, right? So basically, you, you do an access control check based on the data that comes from the data response, so, right? Or else data comes from a data source. So that's where those stuff actually, the optimal way to do that is at the application itself. But still, you can externalize the policies. You can still write the policies outside and evaluate those stuff in the application level. You cannot totally get rid of that, but you can minimize like how much you need to worry about. For example, open policy agent has become like the de facto standard for defining these policies in these cloud native environments. So they have a language called Rego. So from Rego, you can write the policies. And even SACML was popular some time back, but now due to the complexity of SACML, no one is using that. But there are, there are ways to do what you said before, uh, to, to, to do the data entitlement. For example, in SACML, there's a concept called obligations. So what happens is, for example, like you, whenever request comes, you talk to the policy decision point. Policy decision point says, okay, if the employees in, is the if the requester is in the HR admin role, he can do a get to the employee salaries, but with this obligation. What's the obligation? He can only see if the salary amount is greater than ten k, right? So that obligation itself becomes a string. And you pass that string to the application 
an application should know how to interpret that string. Right. So you, can, you can minimize those stuff, but still, yes. So there are some dependence on the application side, how you implement uh, those access control rules. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun and having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and you use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at adventuresin.net.com slash Raygun. Yeah, I think that's a great example because it covers like how much you can delegate and expect your framework to do for you. And then you, you in this example, you realize you still have to do some work in your actual microservice. I like that example, those different levels. You can just at the API level, maybe yes. say whether you can call it at all or not. It's an all or none kind of approach, which is great. Hopefully most of your stuff fits in that, which is nice because it's the easiest. Yeah. And then kind of at the microservices level and then down at the data levels where it does get pretty involved. Um, just to take your example a little further, let's say I was implementing a system. I like your salary example. And let's say in the salary example, if I had the role of HR, of course I could see salaries because that's just part of the job in most HR companies. Yeah. But then let's say we make it a little trickier. Let's say I can also, besides getting all the data about the employees, I can get salaries if I also am your direct manager and I'm higher than just a first level manager. I'm at least a senior level manager. So now we're getting into things like the relationship between two people and the data and stuff. What would be a reasonable approach if somebody had to solve that kind of problem where whether or not you get to see the salary for these people, it depends on the relationship between you and them. So it's not as obviously just a simple role that you have on your own. It's also a role you have relating to the people, the data. Yeah, so yes. So basically, when you write those policies, like if you take uh, in, in, even in OPA and even in SACML, so basically, like in the, uh, the policy architecture, there's a concept called policy information points. Right? Mm -hmm. So you define the access control policies in whatever the programming language, the language you need, SACML, OPA, or any language. Then to evaluate these policies, you need some data, right? Mm -hmm. So, for example, your policy can say, you can view records of employees who are directly reporting to you. That's the policy rule, right? But you don't hard code any of these roles. Right? So now for the request you send your name, just the name who is trying and the name of the person who you want to see the salary, right? So now you pass that to the policy engine, then policy engine will talk to a policy information point to retrieve the information, role of you and role of the person who you want to see the salary of and the relationship between those two roles you feed into the policy decision point from multiple other data sources and then policy decision point makes a 
decision. So you decouple the data from the policies rules. So that's that's a like common way of doing that. That's nice. I mean, this, one of the things I think fits in very well here is the idea of like really how complex is your project and knowing some of that at the start. I mean, we've all seen projects where, oh yeah, yeah, security, you know, maybe we'll add it at the end or something. Yeah. And then you think, oh, I'll do a little bit. I'll just do a JWT token. Oh, okay, well now I need a couple roles. And then if your project unfortunately does get all the way down to where, oh no, now I need data-based secure database decisions on what I can see and can't see. At that point, a lot of times you start to wish, wow, I wish I would have started differently at the beginning of the project. So I think this is one of the things that I really like about this book is you guys are trying to cover like the different levels at the start. So somebody could read this and try to figure out, hopefully, before you've written a bunch of code, what level am I going to need to target in the end? And if I really need something very detailed, wow, maybe I shouldn't be writing that. Some of these frameworks may do a lot of this for me. On simple projects, a lot of times it does still pay just to write something quick for yourself. Yeah, and to extend that example, like especially with what I, what I told before, it's it's common across like microservices or so any other applications that you develop. Mm. Uh, with microservices, we have certain constraints. You don't like when you do access control checks at each microservices, uh, uh, the proxies at each microservice. You you don't have direct access to all these data sources, right? And also expecting each microservice to access those data services is not that good because there's a performance impact. You always need to talk about data sources to retrieve information. To, to fix that issue, what you do is mostly at the API gateway level, you validate the incoming request coming from the client application. After that, you create a JWT to embed the user's information into that JWT. So that JWT may include user's roles, other information, and you pass that JWT between microservices. Then when you want to make a policy decision, that policy decision point will have access to that JWT, which carries the information. So that JWT itself will act as a data source for the policy decision point to make decisions. So you don't need to talk to data, multiple data sources all the time. You pass the information using a JWT. Very nice. And I've, I've used JWT specifically on a couple projects that were just HTTP. I'm not fami as familiar with, is JWT becoming common with other protocols as well? Yeah, we can send JWT or other stuff to anyone you want to talk about. I think book, uh, we talk about how to use JWT with Kafka, GRPC, those stuff too. Ah, nice. Thanks, you can use yeah. a familiar mechanism for many different types of uh, transport protocols. Yes, exactly. So, so JWT is kind of becoming standard now in the sense it's being used over multiple channels and protocols. So even over uh, gRPC, you can use JWT to secure Kafka channels. You can use uh, JWTs and so on. So it's basically becoming a common way of passing user context and, and claims um, securely. Oh, hooray for standards. <laughs> Something we can rely on, right? <laughs> That's great. Okay, so, so, so we've got kind of a, a basic high-level idea where we're covering many different methods of doing author, authorization and authentication both. Is, uh, have you guys, so what I've found when I'm doing things is usually the authentication isn't really you is has been more standard and followed more standards than the authorization 
because authorization is for, has things finally caught up in the industry so that authorization is becoming more standard than it used to be? Yes, I think, yeah. So in, in authorization, uh, as you said, uh, we don't have that much of standards. So once again, there are two, two, two parts. So one is how to communicate an authorization decision from a policy decision point to the enforcement point. Mm-hmm. And the other part is how do you represent the authorization logic as a policy in a standard way? So SACMAL, for example, it addresses that concern. The SACMAL policies are there. So you can write SACML, the, the authorization policies in SACMAL in a standard manner. And also SACMAL defines a request response protocol. It defines like how the PEP should communicate with PDP. Now, if you take OPA, OPA is not a standard. It is an it's an open it's an open source project, right? But still not a standard. It, it didn't come from a standard body, right? So OPA has its own programming language called Rego. It defines a way like a way to write these policies, and also it has more flexibility request response. You can have your own request, which is a JSON payload. Only thing is your policy should just understand the language. What we are seeing is since there's a lack of the standards for like acceptable policies. For example, SACML was rejected by most of the people because it's of this complexity. Due to the same reason, people started to build their own standard for authorization. For example, Amazon. So Amazon uses its own access control policies written JSON, right? Mm-hmm. Then the OPA came as a new, new, new project and there's another one called Speedle. So Speedle, uh, similar to OPA, they build their own language to uh, write uh, policies. It's also open source. It started at Oracle. Now it's maintained as a different project called Speedle Plus. So there's another another project too. There are several other open source projects to represent access control policies. But out of all of them, now we see OPA is dominating. But on the other hand, for authentication, we see a lot of protocols like for, like SAML 2 which came around 2005. Then OpenID Connect was there. Now we have the O2O. So once again, O2O is more than authentication. It's about Access delegation. So how you it's a it's for it's an authorization framework for access delegation, which has become the de facto standard for securing APIs. That's great. So if you fed this down, so if somebody grabbed your book and kind of read and they would understand like a lot of different options, what's going on out there in the industry. Now, if you came down to like a specific project, let's say you let's make it real specific. Let's say some company had maybe acquired some technologies and they had an API server written in Ruby on Rails, and then one written in Microsoft M- MFC, so the, the, the MVC model for, for Microsoft. And now we wanted to take a look at implementing authorization and authentication for those. At some point, you're actually making the call to these authorization systems. Can I do this thing? So does the ability to use these different standards depend upon how much support is in your particular language and maybe even your particular framework for interacting with that? Or do you just write code from scratch? Or do most of these frameworks have libraries that are crossing a lot of different language? What's the kind of the state of the system for for actually making it real specific to your specific technology? Yeah, so I can take a stab at that. So a lot of languages do have libraries and support for doing these kinds of things. But however, one thing you have to keep in mind is it's kind of always good to offload the security to a different layer and not embed it along with your business logic. It does have it has its pros and cons, but the reality of the world is like these services are being consumed by multiple parties. 
So you may expose these APIs to a web application today, but tomorrow you, your business may make a decision that you want to build a web a mobile application consuming these APIs. And the way you think about security uh, based on who is going to access this and where they're going to come from, what kind of devices are going to be consumed, these services are going to be uh, very different. So you have to make changes to your uh, security layers based on these kinds of decisions. So it's always good to offload uh, these kinds of security policies to an external layer, which could be like an API gateway layer. And even like if you're thinking about the microservices like architecture, like Prabhat was talking about before, like you have this uh, proxy uh, sitting just before your services and granting access. So you can do the security at those individual proxy layers and so on. So my, my view is that it's always good to use something in front to take care of all of that. I think that's great. Yeah, the idea, I think the idea of Nuan is great, the idea that you do it and delegate that up and get that out of your microservice completely because once you start having to get into all these different applications, especially if they're in two different languages, you know, maybe your company acquired some other companies, whatever the case may be, then you're just getting very messy. Now, if you did that at the API level or API gateway, that's wonderful because then the access is done up there, you're done. And the microservice, there's actually no code at all for wondering if you can do the thing or not. But now if we drill down more to a case where, yes, we actually have details in here where that microservice needs to show different amounts of data or make some decisions, and it just is going to have to be aware of what the authorizations are that this person has. So now if you were in that more detailed case, and you said, oh, I want to look at using one of these standards. What's a good way to find out like how much support is there in my particular language for one of these different standards for helping me out? Yeah, so it's so most of these standard languages now have libraries for all of them. So basically, if you look at languages like Go to Java to, to C++ even, they, they have languages and not, not, sorry, libraries and not just libraries, but even frameworks. So Spring Boot, for example, is a good framework for, for Java, for, for Java applications for doing these kinds of stuff. So it's pretty easy, I guess, so to, to find uh, support for this. So in most cases, what happens is, in like the example that you mentioned, these policies or claims will be embedded in a JWT and passed on to your microservice, uh, whatever the data it needs in terms of authorization context. So what you really need to look for is, uh, how much of a support you have in your language or library or framework to, to read these JWTs in a trusted way. Basically, the, the things that you have to do is uh, trust, uh, verify the signature of the JWT and then pass it, which is a JSON, and then look at the claims of it. So these are the basic things that you should be looking for. And I guess most programming languages now have standard support for this. So it should be pretty straightforward. Oh, that's great. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I've run into a lot, especially on teams that are a little larger, is if you have a good, nice security system, everything's great. And then, of course, you want all of that to be in action when you deploy it. A lot of times when the developers are in development, they don't want security to even be there or be in the way. Because a lot of times it just creates more headaches and testing becomes very difficult. And all of a sudden, this browser has to do some kind of login and get tokens. Um what have you found are like some of the main key points then for trying to keep both developers happy as well as uh, make it work well in production? Yeah, so I think again, so the, the, the answer is to offload security uh, to a separate layer, which is kind of like the best way to achieve this. 
So in those kinds of situations, it's what you will typically do in a development kind of a environment is basically you will switch off uh, these layers and grant direct access to your microservices or whatever the services that you're exposing. And you will basically bypass these layers. And when you move that stuff to production, the network infrastructure will not allow those kinds of direct communication. So your network infrastructure will ensure that the communications need to happen through these uh, secure channels. So if you can manage to offload the security into a proxy kind of a layer, I think it's it's uh, easy to manage this. But in cases where you have business logic associated with claims and so on, where you have to read the claims from a JWT and apply logic based on those capabilities. So in that cases, it becomes it becomes a, it becomes hard. Basically, it becomes impossible for you to kind of ignore security because your logic now relies on the security context. So again, there are various ways you can get around this, like using uh, mocking frameworks and, and so on, like similar patterns that we used in for writing unit tests, where you, we, you know, where we use mechanisms to mock databases and mock services uh, when we are running unit tests. So there are mechanisms like these as well, so that you can apply some flags in your code to make sure that this is just in uh, this mock just happens in development state only. Yeah, that's great. I, I really agree that, that if you can do it through the networking level, so it sounds like if you do that where there is just an API gateway or something, it becomes so simple that you actually just by your network and your routing tables and then dev, you're going around the API gateway just right to the back services and the services, they don't know any difference. They don't know whether the API gateway was there or not. And then in production, everything must route through the API gateway. And so by the time it gets to the service, it still doesn't know, but it's protected by the fact of how the routing's, uh, routing is set up. Yes, exactly. So that's kind of like how uh, Kubernetes also works. So based on a lot of routing rules and so on within their systems. So in a Kubernetes kind of world, this is easier to manage because you can have different namespaces where you operate your dev code, your staging and your production code and so on. And each, in each of these different namespaces you can switch on and off certain routing rules and policies so that you can achieve achieve this in an easier way in in kubernetes like environments that's great yeah yeah i also agree you know that's a really good way to go about it because i don't know how many times when i've been developing something you know i've got the authorized attribute on it to make sure that you know the person coming in is authorized but for my testing i comment that out so i don't have to worry about that and it's like okay i gotta remember to to re- uncomment that once I <laughs> once I deploy, so it's always been a, a real worry uh, in doing something like that. Moving it outside of that uh, definitely makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so we've got the basic knowledge about securing your microservices. One thing I think that's really key would be now you've got it all in place. Do you think everything's working? How do you go about testing it? <laughs> yeah, tricky question. So. Uh, it's basically, again, you know, th- there are several things to consider when you're securing it. So, so one is in a testing kind of an environment, you need to find ways to mock your microservices, to mock, mock your services. So there are various levels of testing you do. You do unit testing. And in that kind of a case, uh, you you mostly focused on mocking the dependent microservices and so on. So in that case, you basically uh, mock the stuff as much as possible and focus on the dependent unit that you want to test. Uh, And then you go into the next level of integration testing where you kind of need these dependent services. 
So again, like you said, security context can be switched on and off uh, through some uh, tricks, I would say, by, you know, bypassing several layers, using the routing protocols and so on. So that would be one way of getting around security. But when it comes to integration and end-to-end testing, it's basically, right, I don't see any differences or, you know, any any things that are significantly different from how we would test an application. Basically, we would be using the typical long-running tests, the, the, the continuous testing and the typical security uh, stuff, uh, sorry, the typical testing stuff that we would be using against any kind of application. Okay. So, um, I don't know. I I mean, it all sounds really interesting. I think this is a a great topic. I think I've I've learned a lot today dealing with some microservices and securing. What things have have we not covered that uh, the users and our listeners should know about? So, I think one of the things that we often forget is uh, like Joel was mentioning, like we forget to think about security where it should be thought at about. So we may even think of authentication and authorization stuff right at the beginning of the project. But what's also important is that you uh, start practicing secure coding and designing and API guidelines as well uh, when you're starting a microservice project. So this basically includes you know, testing your code uh, for security uh, bugs and so on. So there are different kinds of tools that we talk about in the book, how, how you can write secure code, basically. Um, because now, if you if you look at any security system, any architecture, the, the strength of the security of this architecture is only as much as your weakest point. So you may have all of the fantastic security layers that are required with, you know, service mesh or API gateways or whatever. But if you have a pretty basic security bug in your code, that's how low your security would fall. Because if someone can get through that, that means all of the other layers that you have on top of it are, you know, they're useless. So your security is only as strong as the weakest security bug that you have in your system. So that's the tricky point when it comes to security. So it's very important to think about, you know, security, even at the code uh, level, and even at the API design level. So there are, you know, various uh, tools available for testing, uh, checking your code for security loopholes, but not only your code, even your API designs, your interfaces. So there are tools out there uh, that look at your API design and tell you uh, how secure they are, right, Uh, and so on. So are there, this, are there tools you would recommend? Yeah, so we we have come across something called an API security.io. So that's this is basically for uh, REST API design. So if you go to API security.io, you will see how you can submit your REST API specification. So REST APIs are defined in what we call an open API specification mostly. So you can submit your open API specification of your API and it will give you a score. It will scan your spec and tell you how secure it is. And it will also give you recommendations on saying, you know, these are some of the improvements that you can do to your interface and so on. So I think these are some areas that people, you know, don't think about much in terms of securing their services. That's awesome. That's awesome. Anything else we should know? No, I think we've covered it. So we, we so Prabhat initially mentioned how the book is structured. So we talk about edge security, we talk about service-to-service security, and when we, of course, in the book, we talk about these kinds of secure coding practices and guidelines. So I think all of these combined should give you a good security practice and an infrastructure. That's great, Juan. Yeah, really good to have you on today. Yeah, thanks.
Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. It looks like we uh, lost Prabhath. He must have lost his connection or something happened there. So he's not with us anymore. So, But if there's nothing else, I think we should move on to picks. So my pick last week was my new VR headset. And so I've been using it this week and playing lots of games and apps and checking things out. And one thing that I really think that I like about that I picked up is the Elite Strap. So it comes with a strap that's kind of a basic fabric strap that covers over the top of your head and then around the sides. But the pressure points are a little bit off. So I picked up the Quest 2 Elite Strap. And it is, is, it's really nice because it puts the pressure point on the back of your head. And it really kind of secures the headset, makes it more stable, and makes it a lot more comfortable. Now, I only got the Elite Strap. I didn't get the package where you get the strap and the battery and and a case. I don't think the battery option is really that useful unless you really want that portability. But Because you can just plug in and add any old USB battery pack into the side and get a lot more battery you know, length out of it if you go with an external battery pack that's not the one that's built into the, in the headset. So my pick this week is the Quest 2 Elite Strap. What's your pick, Joel? Oh, that's great, Sean. Yeah, so as you know, I'm trying to get a couple of my bicycles ready for winter here in Minnesota. And last week, I had a recommendation for a person who has this wonderful website reviewing just the different levels of tires, what kind of riding you're going to do. If you're going to be riding on some dry paved tar, you don't want something too big of spikes because we'll actually tear the studs out. If you're riding on snowier stuff, you need some more tread. So anyways, I figured out I'm going to be riding occasionally paved, occasionally shoveled trails. So there's going to be generally some snow cover on them, (laughs) as well as gravel roads and off-road. And so what I ordered and just showed up between when I talked last time in this show is the Schwalbe Ice Spiker Pro for 29ers. So I'm getting my mountain bike ready to be a commuter and um, just kind of riding for the fun of being outdoors bike. So I'll put a link in there to those tires. Those are the ones, these are a pretty aggressive tread. So they're not meant for daily commuting on um, plowed or shoveled roads. The spikes are too big and they would tear out. These are meant for a little bit more kind of trail conditions and all. So hopefully I'll have this completely ready before our real snow hits. We're supposed to get up to 50, I think, on Tuesday and Wednesday. So I think all this snow that we got too early is going to be gone. So our real snow typically comes in more like middle of November here. So yeah, I haven't had enough yeah. of the curve. I should be ready for it. Yeah, we've warmed up too. You know, we were, we got down to about 10 degrees here about in this last weekend. But, uh, yeah, but uh, we finally got back up into the 50s during the, during the, the daytime. So uh, yeah. yeah, so, but again, yeah, Mid-November, usually when we really start cooling down. Right, right. Yep. Yeah, I'm feeling ready. All right. So, Nuan, we did put a, a link to your book in the show notes. So, if people want to check out your book, they can look at the show notes and they can look at your book. Is there something else that you would like to let our listeners know about that interests you these days? Well, nothing much. But one thing, in, in the context of security, again, and APIs, I think, the OAuth 2.1 specification is is being talked about, talked about. There's a draft already, and it's being talked about. So I think we are having our 
next iam meetup in in silicon valley so prabhat is basically running that show so uh, there's uh, someone who's leading the spec who's going to be coming and talking about it so i think that's going to be pretty interesting given given the context uh, that we are walking into microservices and so on so i think that's that would be something interesting for for users interested in, in this topic awesome awesome well thanks for coming and uh, talking to us today about microservices security i i I thought it was a really good discussion. We, I think I, I learned a lot. So thank you. Yeah, and thank you for having um, having me and, and Prabhat as well. Unfortunately, he's having some trouble with his connection. So thank you for having the both of us. And it's, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, yeah, Nuan, if people want to uh, reach you or just get in touch with you, what are some of the best ways they could do that? So Twitter is, I think, mine and Prabhat both preferences. So Nuan Dias, N-U-W-A-N-D-I-A-S is my Twitter handle. And for Prabhat, it's just uh, Prabhat, P-R-A-B-A-T-H. So you can reach us through that. Great. Yeah, that's great. And if our listeners want to reach out to the show, they want to get in touch with me, they can also find me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. Thanks, everybody. And we'll catch everybody on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.